Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowey. In today's episode, we're talking to two Australian pollsters about the Australian Polling Council and what has changed in Australian polling since 2019. My first guest today is Campbell White. Campbell is Asia-Pacific Head of Public Affairs and Polling for YouGov, which is the company that publishes NewsPoll, and is also the chair of the Australian Polling Council. Hello, Campbell. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? And my second guest today is Mark Davis. Mark is Managing Director for Ipsos in Australia and New Zealand and is the Secretary of the APC. Hello, Mark. Hi, Ben. Uh, Pleased to be here. So the 2019 federal election wasn't the greatest for Australian polls. We have a history of our polls being pretty accurate in this country, but uh, in 2019, all of the major Australian polls predicted a relatively slim Labor two-party preferred majority, around 51 to 52%. But the coalition ended up winning the two-party preferred vote with 51.5%, enough to win a slim parliamentary majority. Since that election, we've seen the formation of the Australian Polling Council, which counts amongst its members most of Australia's main political pollsters. Campbell, where did the idea for the APC first come from? I guess it was a couple of things um, that led to it. The first thing was after the 2019 election, we had a lot of people talking in public about polling um, and sort of speculating what went what went wrong. Um, and a lot of it, to be honest, was, you know, remarkably uninformed <laughs> and frankly, in some cases, a bit self-interested. So, you know, there was sort of this need for pollsters to actually be more transparent about what they were doing and also to be able to speak um, when something like this occurs and sort of to explain what what happened. The, the other factor was, um, you know, we all recognised that the status quo was no longer good enough and it was an industry that frankly was quite opaque. And based on the assumption that people should just trust polling unquestionably, now it was pretty evident that that was not going to fly after 2019. And to be honest, maybe it should have changed. Well, definitely it should have changed long before that. Um, So, you know, it was really an opportunity to sort of reposition the industry and to get the industry much more transparent than it had been in the past. Yeah, look, I think the other part of it is that the Polling Council um, really encourages all of the things that that make it easier to understand what's going on. Um, and, And that makes a big difference to what comes out in terms of journalists and the public seeing polls and understanding exactly what it is that goes into make them and being able to judge the quality and the appropriateness of, for example, the questions that are being asked. So it's been a, a labour of love for, for many of us in the polling the polling industry uh, and it's something that, uh, that I think is making a difference and I know we'll, we'll undoubtedly talk about some of those things shortly. I'd imagine one of the things about it as well is providing more transparency, providing statements about what you do can open you up to criticism and can open you up to those sorts of things. And there's value in moving together, right? That you all do it at the same time. It's not seen as someone, one company taking a risk on their own and opening themselves up while other people don't, right? That you um, kind of make this kind of collective movement of self-regulation. For sort of inspiration, we looked at the British Polling Council and um, one of the things about the British Polling Council has done is really sort of make these standards universal. So it has a set of standards around transparency. And in the UK, the media basically demands that uh, pollsters adhere to it. So it's not left up to the pollster to sort of give away what they choose to give away. It's actually a transparency 
that the media insists on. And I think we need to move towards something similar here. We'll only actually get this becoming really important when uh, people start demanding it. Um, there shouldn't be exemptions. You know, basically everyone should contribute. I used to work for an organisation that would commission polls and sometimes publish those polls. And usually the way you would publish a, at least a poll that's a commissioned poll for a story as opposed to like a fortnightly or weekly poll for a media publication is you'd give the poll to a journalist and they'd write up a story about it. But um, often no one would ever see the actual report of the poll and you would rely on the journalist actually including the key stats. And I was always pushing saying we should we should just publish all of these on our own website. But that seems like that's now a thing that has become clarified that um, even if the journalist doesn't necessarily include every stat and story, that information is somewhere. And I always thought it was a bit of a flaw in the system that you rely on a journalist who doesn't have any statistical or polling training to fulfill all the accountability themselves. And, you know, having a standard and just being like a journalist just needs to ask, is this meeting the standard? That's a lot simpler than having to be across all of the ways in which polls might be good or bad, or even whether they're good or bad, whether they're, um, you know, uh, fully transparent. The lack of transparency is not about the media outlet that has been publishing the poll. Um, a lot of people receive their polls now through social media and through blogs and things like that that aren't necessarily the source that publishes it. In the case of news poll, from day one, as far as I'm aware, um, the questions have always been published along with the sample size and um, margin of error. And, um, you know, that is in the paper, but you see people posting on social media that the question's not available. Um, you know, so one of the things with the polling council, I guess, is we we put these, message, these method statements outside of the paywall because we recognise that, you know, a lot of people are consuming the poll through various means now. Even if it wasn't paywalled, you know, knowing where to find it, if it's if it happens to be just attached to a news story or whatever, being able to go, I'll go to the YouGov website or the Ipsos website and the, all the stats will be there. Not that that stuff didn't happen before. Like a lot of that did happen before, but it didn't always happen. There are some pollsters who are not members, and I don't want to particularly focus on who they are or anything, but um, if you're looking at a poll that's not from a member of the polling council, what might you be missing out on that you would otherwise get? I don't, I don't believe that we can say or we should say that polls undertaken by non-members are necessarily inherently um, bad or problematic. Um, that the, the issue that we're looking at is because the transparency isn't there um, for, for many of these polls along the lines that we have for the polling council, uh, it's very hard to know that. So the, the sorts of issues that, um, that potentially come up is a lack of ability to understand what's sitting under the, under the, the bonnet, if you like, um, understanding what it is that's driving the, both the results, whether it's to do with the sample, the question, the weighting, all of those different aspects. Uh, and that's something that, uh, that we believe as a pollen council is very important. Uh, and so they're the things that give the confidence to any reader of a poll um, anybody that's looking at it, they can go in, they can see what's happening and they can make their own call over what's going on in the poll that they're reading about. A key purpose of setting up the polling council was to establish a code of conduct. And the code of conduct was designed by people who understand polling. Um, you know, it wasn't imposed from without. It was that the pollsters got together 
And frankly, we know the things that um, make polls the way they are or not. And so we know what's important to disclose. And things like, you know, the variables used to weight the data, the, the amount of impact that weighting is having on the data and the full structure of the questions, all those are things which weren't necessarily being called for to be transparent about. But from our perspective, we know that those things are just incredibly important to evaluating the quality of the poll and it's likely accuracy. And if, if you don't know those things, you actually can't make a judgment. So that's why the code's got those things in it. Certainly our belief within Ipsos, but it's it's common across all of the polling council members, is that that journalists, public, have really have a right to know what it is that, that is happening on a poll. Um, and that and it shouldn't be something that that the pollsters say, well, we're not going to tell you this and we're not going to tell you that, um, and hide the information. Um, it is about transparency. And we do encourage journalists and others to to ask the question. Um, if it's not available, we, we do encourage them to ask the question and find those details because they are so important. 2019, I feel like there's there's a myth that's come out since then that it was a complete shock, came out of nowhere, had no precedent or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, the polls were off by two and a half to three and a half points. Um, it's interesting that they were all kind of consist pretty consistently off. I think that's probably part of what happened. And I think there was a perception at the time that had been based on earlier polls that were much stronger for Labor that had built a sense that Labor was definitely going to win, which wasn't true towards the end. And I know as someone who follows this stuff closely and analyzes it, people like myself at the end of the election, we thought Labor were the favorites, but there was no certainty about that result. And there was, you know, awareness that polls can be off a little bit after all. We'd, we'd had the experience of the US election a couple of years before, but they were all off pretty consistently in, in the same direction. And since then, there's been an inquiry by uh, a panel of experts who looked into it, but I'm sure all of the companies have also done their own internal reviews of what they do. What have you done to your polls since 2019 to address what happened in 2019 and like your assessment of what did happen? YouGov runs a news poll, obviously. You might have mentioned that at the beginning. Basically, um, apart from the questions, which remain consistent, we basically went back to basics and um, over a process of a year basically came up with a new approach for the poll. Um, 2019 actually represented, I think, an opportunity, you know, in hindsight, because you don't change unless something goes wrong. Um, like 2016, and people forget this. I mean, I see sort of comments, polls have always been wrong, polls have been wrong for years. In Australia, part of the shock of 2019 was that polls were had been accurate for a very long time. 2016 was actually the most accurate uh, polls in the history of Australian polling. So, you know, the idea that after 2016 that, you know, it was going to be easy to change to update to modern methodologies, it, it just doesn't happen that way. Whereas 2019 actually gave that opportunity so in the case of news poll, it meant that, and, it, and everybody had different approaches and everybody has done different things. In our case, it meant um, removing the um, automated telephone component of our poll and moving it to purely online, which is YouGov's global methodology. 
Um, for us, that meant that we were able to we're able to better represent the population online than we can can on the telephone. And the main reason for that is this this is sort of assumption, right? That you know, if it's an online poll, anyone can participate. You know, or they anyone can sign up to the panel or whatever. You know, just because they sign up to the panel doesn't mean they're going to be selected to participate in a particular survey. So it actually gives us much more ability to actually control the structure of our poll to make sure that we've got people of a, a classic example is um, you know people with without tertiary education who are aged um, under forty years of age. You know they are um, often think differently from uh, other voters. Um, if you don't have enough of them in your sample, your results aren't going to be correct. So moving to that methodology allowed us to target the sample and structure it better rather than having to fix problems with weighting. I think that's that's really important. The other thing that we were able to do online, which we couldn't do previously, is um, we can actually structure the the options that the person has in their voting intention questions to reflect what they actually have in their electorate. And the reason that's incredibly important is um, there's been some discussion about, you know, oh, you know the, the polls aren't representing the teal independents or the polls aren't representing, you know, this or that minor party. Um, if you look underneath in our, in our disclosure statement, it's, it's sort of impossible to list on the paper every single party that you're naming, uh, but we're actually able to name every single party an independent candidate that is running in each electorate and tailor the list accordingly. And that, that would be something that would change a little bit once the nominations close, right? Because before that, it's a little bit hard to know who's running. Exactly. Yeah, we've got to make an assessments before that. We're going to make judgments, um, you know, and, and our judgment was um, basically the way people had nominated in previous elections or if they'd announced candidates, uh, we included them. Um, but yeah, after nomination, we completely overhauled it. And you couldn't do that on the phone before that? That was too hard? No, it's, it's too complex. Um, it, it might be theoretically possible on a, on a live telephone interview, but a, a robo-poll, it's not really practical. Like Campbell, we did an assessment of, uh, of how things went um, last time. Like all of the other polls, we ended up on the wrong side of the line last time. Uh, we were broadly happy with how it had gone with... Yeah, that we we knew that we were we were over where we should have been with the Greens. Um, we had the the coalition moving in the right direction in our last pre-election poll, but we we still ended up in the wrong place. So we spent quite a bit of time looking at what we did and what we felt we needed to change. Through that, we have as also a global a global organisation, we've got a very strong um, polling team globally, uh, and that that helps in the conduct of polls across 40-odd countries. And so we spent time with our global polling team looking at how we operated it, what we were doing, why we were doing it, and what we felt may or may not be working. Where we've ended up is we've taken an approach which moves a large amount of what we do online, um, not all of it. So we've retained some of the telephone interviewing and by telephone interviewing last time, what we were doing was actually interview-administered surveys rather than the robo-poll. And we've we've retained that as a proportion. It's not a huge proportion, 
makes up about 20% of, um, of our sample. And we've done that looking at the results from last time, looking at how we feel um, we can best calibrate the result that, um, that hopefully will be matching what we end up seeing on, on election day. So the methodology is one part of it. On the sampling side, not a great deal of, of change in a broad sense, other than we are now operating off, off panels for online panels for our, um, for our online sample. Uh, we're still doing random digit dialing, both landline and mobile. Uh, so I, I think one of the things from our point of view, there was lots of conversation in 2019 around you know, telephone interviewing, contacting people on their landlines and nobody has a landline anymore. Um, we we had a very large proportion of our sample that was being done on mobiles, not just landlines. So we've we've retained that, but we've actually pushed our sample much more heavily on, for the caddy sample, much more heavily to mobile sample. Uh, so it now makes up about 85% of our of our phone sample. So on the sampling front, we've spent quite a bit of time working through that, uh, and we've also then gone through and looked at. Yeah, at how we wait, we've made a few small changes in there that we think should make the difference. Uh, they're the key aspects methodologically. The other thing that's that's probably worth noting, it, and yeah, and I, I think uh, I think we well we have seen similar things done within other poly organisations, um, and that is we've we've looked at what we report and how we report it. So we've we've taken we've taken an approach where. We've looked at 2019 and other other elections around the globe, and clearly how undecideds um, are treated is um, yeah is a potential area for um, for confusion or increasing the level of certainty people feel is in the data when it's not necessarily there. So we're reporting uh, the the level of undecided in our effectively primary vote and two-party preferred vote. Uh, and we're, we're doing that because we we really want people to remember that yeah, it's not as simple as saying it's a done deal with all of the votes going one way or other. There is still a group of people at the moment, sort of around about that 7-8% who are undecided. Um, and, yeah, and the bigger that group is, clearly the impact that that can have on the final results can be large. Um, and I think particularly in an election like we're looking at this year with large numbers and fairly high profile independent candidates, so the, the Teal group, we're still seeing high levels of uncertainty there and what's undoubtedly shaping up to be pretty tight seats across the country. I have a couple of things that are a, a little bit of a different perspective on a couple of those things. Firstly, um, I think we have a look when we're talking about undecided and the proportion that is still undecided uh, that there is a proportion of Australians who don't vote. Um, it's it's overlooked in the Australian context because we have compulsory voting, but you know it's not an insubstantial number of people who either you know don't vote, don't turn up at all, or people who actually turn up and you know draw something offensive on the ballot paper. So, you know, that's, um, that is a real thing. And in the case of news poll, you know, we publish in the last poll, there was 6% um, uncommitted who are excluded. I mean, there's been some discussion by some other commentators and things like that, that sort of, that this is the key group, that this is the most important 
group and, you know, by sort of not bringing them to the front and centre, we're sort of, you know, misleading. A proportion of them are probably aren't going to vote. We don't know exactly how big that proportion is because there's really no way to know. But we do know that the proportion that doesn't vote is larger than that. Uh, so, you know... No, I, I'd agree that the, the percentage, you know, the numbers of you know, 25%, 30% of people still undecided, um, yeah, I, I don't see that that's, that that's supported by, by much, to be honest. Um, I, I think when we look at... When we look at what, how we report at the moment, um, we're reporting the undecided, undecideds there. And, and they, they will be, I agree, they will be a, a combination of people. There'll be people who genuinely haven't decided. There'll be people who, um, who haven't decided because they're not going to vote um, or they're going to vote in, a, in an informal way. Um, one of the things that, that we have always done with our final pre-election poll um, is we actually we actually filter those people out who tell us that they're not going to um, that basically they're not certainly certain to vote. Um, so that removes some of that um, ambiguity in, in meaning for that. We're looking at a, an election now from a polling perspective that is no different to other elections in terms of from a practical sense. But what we're doing as pollsters is very different to let's let's say let's say orienteering um, now. Way, way, way off from a from the from a sort of a topic area, but you know, when you're orienteering, then you have a map, you have a starting point, you work, you, you head off in a direction, um, you're going up and down hills wherever it is, and you get a certain distance, and you stop and you check your compass and you go, okay, am I on track? Am I where I need to be? If you're not, you recalibrate, you move on, and you you get to the end. With polling, though, it's it's quite different. Um, yes, you've got experience to draw from, and you've got other other things that you're looking at around the election and the lead up to it. Whether that's your own research beyond the polling, um, and and we do that with a lot of a lot of things that that we run. Um, you know, whether it's our our gives us issues monitor or um, or other survey work that is giving us a feel for context and background, but also. Uh, uh, whether it's social listening, looking at what's being, what's going on, none of these are going to feed directly into what we're doing, but they do help us contextualise where it's at. But what we don't have the ability to is stop and take that compass read in terms of comparison with reality, and yeah, and that's that's the biggest challenge. Um, experience, skills, art, all of those things come together, but it won't be until the end of the day, um, after the election is completed and the votes have been tallied and, and the results are, are known, that we'll actually know whether our polling has been spot on or not. Um, and so now, the, the challenge that we have seen, um, I'm sure Campbell has the same experience that he can draw from, is when you have a, an election like we did in 2019 and, and the polling, quote, miss. Um, as it's been referred to, um, then it's not unusual for the following election for corrections to be made, which actually, in some cases, can make it worse. We, we all hope that that's not the case and that, that what we put in place actually improves um, improves things. So you know, this isn't to say that we are not confident in what we're doing, 
or that um, that there isn't a place for for good polling, and there absolutely is. Um, it's a bit of uh, what my uh, what our, our polling spokesperson Jess Elgood refers to as the High Wire Act, where you're heading to an endpoint, you want to get there, you wobble, you get to the end, um, and you have everybody watching to see if you're going to fall off, particularly in an election like this. This has been and continues to be a, a really challenging time for all pollsters um, because that attention is is there and on all of us in a way that it really hasn't been for a very long time. I, I think in the case of of news poll, there has been, you know, we've been fortunate enough that over the past three years, we have actually been able to calibrate our poll in three different state elections. Um, and, you know, because we, we were actually the only major pollster um, who are out there at those three state elections. Um, and progressively, uh, those polls have actually proved more accurate at each of those state elections. So the point of the South Australian one was, you know, um, we we're very happy with how that correlated with the final result. I, I actually have confidence in what we're doing. I, I think the public can have confidence that A, polls are a lot more transparent than they were in, in the past. There is diversity, um, but basically none of us have sort of sat in our hands after 2019. You know, it, it's almost sort of illogical to assume that this, the errors will be the same. And I think this is what the point that Mark was making. In the UK election in 2017, you know, they actually over-calibrated. Um, there's, there's been a lot of discussion about the American election where, you know, the, the, the polls seem to have the same problems. I think it's a different, the US is a different environment. You actually had one prominent leader of a major party in the US actually rubbishing intellectuals, rubbishing polling, etc. you know, that, that actually affected who participated in polls. I don't think we've got that problem in Australia, I think that, you know, basically our both major parties are respectful of the process and um, and things like that. So I think that we, you know, I, I've never seen any evidence of the shy Tory effect or, or things like that that people have claimed. Um, so it's really up to us to make sure that we have our weighting and structures correctly. And I think everybody's learned from that experience and I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic. We're recording this on the Monday, two weeks out from the election. Uh, both Ipsos and NewsPoll published new polls last night that both showed uh, increase in Labor's support on two-party preferred. Uh, Ipsos went from 55 to 57, and uh, NewsPoll went from 53 to 54. It's interesting. We have a little bit we, – we definitely have a lot more diversity in the polling figures this time than we had last time. Um, you know, Essential's a bit closer. Morgan's, Morgan's a bit better for Labor. And uh, a little bit of – the polls moving around as they go, which I think most people who know about this stuff agree is probably a good thing, even if you want your individual poll to be the one that's right. Any thoughts about what those polls are looking like now? Your comment about some divergency being a good thing, I, I'd agree with. Um, yeah, that, uh, you know, one, one of the criticisms last time was that everything, you know, all the polls were very, very close. Um, and had we had we all got it right, then it would have, you know, 
it wouldn't have been an issue. Everyone would have said that's yeah, you know, that's fantastic. You know, we've got a great uh, great set of, of pollsters that that uh, that are pretty accurate. But when you've similar, but you've missed the target um, in that sense, uh, that then obviously the criticism is a lot greater. Uh, so we are seeing some variation there. Um, you know, I think that that there's there's internal consistency across you know, across individual polls. You know, so we're looking we look at our poll and we say, look, we're you know that what we're seeing is internally consistent within the poll and across other sources of um, you know, of data and other sort sort of sources of context that we're seeing, and the the fact that again I'll go back to the, the the level of transparency that's there. It gives anybody the ability to go in and look and say, okay, what might be driving those differences? Yeah, and certainly you you wouldn't expect the yeah, the regular man in the street, as it were, to yeah, to to say, well, I'm going to go and have a look at the yeah, at the YouGov website to see what the latest um, methodological statement on their poll is, and uh, and look at the Ipsos site and and look at the same things for for Essential and other other members. Um, but they are there, and our hope and expectation is that, particularly around the reporting uh, in the media on the polls, that is looked at pretty carefully, um, that the actual methodology used is part of their understanding and shaping their understanding and how they report it as well. Yeah, I think we're seeing that now more and more, um, and hopefully it's something that we'll continue to see moving forward um, even more broadly across across companies that do polling and, and across the media as well. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Mark and Campbell, for joining me. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Ben, for having us. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, Campbell. Thanks very much, Ben. I, I just want to do a shout-out, if I can, to all the other members of the Polling Council because there are 11 members um, and, you know, this was a collaborative effort. And also, to be honest, to the um, academics and the media organisations that sort of supported the process, um, it's, it's very important. So thank you. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.